Apparently the same thing happened with elephants in 2010. They don't mate with giraffes either. (laughs) (laughs) Your job, Dance, at the TAC polymerase. My job is to add the magnesium chloride. Kevin's job is to add the primers. Who shakes it? Shake it, Dan. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. Today on the show, we find out what it's like to do science without the power of sight. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 57. I'm Joshua Hall. And I'm Daniel Erneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Welcome back, Dan. Thanks, Josh. Good to see you. Good to see you. You know, the last few weeks, I'm sure our listeners are pulling their hair out because it's just been me and you sitting here talking. I found it extremely boring. Well, finally, we have freshened up the studio. We have a guest. Fantastic. Why don't you introduce him? All right, we have with us this week second year PhD student Kevin Curran. Hi, Kevin. Hi, Kevin. Hey, Josh. Hey, Dan. How you doing? Pretty good. We are very glad you're here. It gets it gets quite dull. We just kind of banter back and forth for a little while, and which is what we're going to do. Rehash now. the same things we've <laughs> talked about for the last ten, fifteen years. But it's great. It's great. Well, you did bring us all a beer here. I think we're sharing two, three ways. I did. So this is a beer from a listener. Oh, fantastic. Who sent us beer? I think we need a listener beer tone for any time a listener sends a beer, like a celebratory... It's like a a jingle bell or whatever. Maybe. So this comes from a friend and colleague, Lynn, at University of Kansas. Hi, Lynn. This is Free State Brewing Garden Party Lager. Is Free State, does that refer to Kansas? I think we had a Free State beer. Yeah, we did have a Free State beer. I'll look it up. Something about the motto of Kansas. Let me just check that out. Okay, I found it. Yes, we did. (laughs) Uh, This is a cool label. So this is Garden Party. I thought, you know what, summer... Actually, I think this is going to be our last episode of the official summer season. Oh, good. I sort of ruined it last week with the fall selection, didn't I? You jumped the gun a little bit. You can have a bonfire in the summer. It's fine. I had a bonfire this week, actually. There you go. Summertime. Uh, Okay, so this one, I want to read it to you because it's unique. Okay, so... Flavors fresh from the garden make it a celebration. Garden Party takes cool cucumber, bright fresh basil, and spicy juniper berries, then marries them into a refreshing festive lager. Um, you know what that reminds me of, and we should have this on the show sometime. Have you ever had cucumbers and gin? Delicious. Yes, I have had cucumbers. Very, and that is very good. I just mentioned cucumbers and juniper berries. Maybe we could do some basil in it and really make a. I mean, I was going to mention I really like cucumbers in water because it does a good job too infuse the water with flavor but gin's fine too <laughs> gin is just water with some extra juniper in it uh what do you guys think of this beer do you do you taste the juniper basil and cucumber yeah yes i do actually when when you brought this out and you didn't tell us what it was i was surprised to hear that it was a lager but i think the um the subtle hints of something floral in there i think the ba- do you remember when we had the summer basil this is sort of similar mm-hmm. you can taste the basil and the cucumber uh i don't know that i would know a juniper berry it's a little bit I fruity almost yeah, it's not bad kevin what do you think I don't know. I don't really taste any of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it may not be his style either. Are you an IPA fan? Because I'm an IPA fan. I do like IPAs. So this is not go. one. No. This no, but it, it's really good. And I think a, a great summer beer. So thank you, Lynn. Yes. Yeah, it actually tastes good. I just don't know that it tastes like those flavors. Yeah, well, that is my pet peeve. Just imagine it. Just imagine those flavors. <laughs> this week, the T-Bone Steak <laughs> Pale Ale. <laughs> mm, I'm glad I don't taste it. All right, so last episode, I did Science in the News, and it was so overwhelmingly popular that I'm going to do it again this week. 
Okay, go on. As in, I enjoyed it. Yeah, fantastic. Let's do it. All right, Dan. So this week, Science in the News is all about giraffes. I like giraffes. This goes to your, actually, your zookeeper. I made a reference days. to Lamarck today at work. You know who Lamarck is? The the anti-Darwin, the one who thought that the giraffes got taller by stretching. Oh, the yeah. yeah. Well, this is good. Yeah. My, my references at work really <laughs> soar. People really <laughs> love it when I talk about obscure biology topics. I bet. Well, did you hear about the giraffes in the news? I did not. Okay. Well, Kevin, did you hear about this? Nope. All right. This is great. All right, so researchers in an article that came out on September 8th in Current Biology actually found out that our lovely giraffe is not one, but four genetically distinct species. But they look the same. If you close your eyes. Yeah. <laughs> That's a rent reference. Yeah. I don't know if you got that. I did. So researchers studied genetic patterns in giraffes, and apparently people used to think there were subspecies of giraffes due to the variance in the coat pattern, but it turns out they were different enough that they realized these were actually non-interbreeding distinct species. And do they live in the same place, they or are do. they all over the place? They do. So apparently giraffes are highly mobile uh, and wide-ranging They have animals. long legs. That helps. <laughs> they do. But they would have many chances to interbreed in the wild, but they don't, or they haven't. And they've become genetically distinct. That's weird. Yeah, so we don't really know what in evolutionary time actually separated them, but this actually has some, some pretty wide-ranging... Well, I wouldn't say wide-ranging. <laughs> yeah, what on earth does this affect of any real importance? Well, it affects zookeepers, Dan. Okay. As you were one. At one well, you worked yeah, in a right. zoo. I worked at a zoo. But if you can imagine if you were a zookeeper trying to have a giraffe breeding program... Oh, that may not go well. That may and not go well for types you. Types one and type three. Exactly. So this actually will be very helpful for <laughs> zookeepers wanting to breed wow, giraffes. Josh. <laughs> is this is this hard hitting <laughs> news cycle? I don't know how you keep up with it. So my newest hobby is giraffe breeding. <laughs> I think there's a real market for this. Uh, oh but that's what I thought was interesting. Two things. So Kevin, I'll distract him. You get out of here. <laughs> Apparently, the same thing happened with elephants in 2010. They don't mate with giraffes either. <laughs> well, I don't think. At least. It turns out we used to think, and I didn't know this, that there was only one species of elephant, but there actually were two, forest and savanna elephants. We didn't know that till 2010. I thought there were Asian and African elephants. Wow. They got the different ears. I did work at a zoo, Josh. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but this had implications because scientists originally were trying to just conserve all the elephants and found out actually only one of them was... Um, endangered. <laughs> and they just don't care about the other one. Yeah, yeah, kill, kill the other one. Who cares about <laughs> the article I was reading said that we would have discovered this about giraffes sooner, but giraffes have largely been neglected by science. Right, because they're not endangered, maybe? Yeah, they're ubiquitous in the habitat, but poachers pretty much leave them alone, and their numbers are good, so no one ever thought to look. Yeah, that's fascinating. And, and if you're a zookeeper, you're really floored by this information. <laughs> For all you giraffe breeders out there, you're welcome. Please write to me because I would love to know that you're listening. Dan, we had some feedback on last week's episode. Yeah, lots of feedback. So last week we talked about potentially changing the way graduate school works in a fundamental way, and that is moving away from independent projects more towards team-based projects. And I we, thought this wouldn't be so controversial, but I think it was the most controversial of the three things that we talked about. Yeah, I really thought the five-year PhD would push people. Yeah, I was bit. maddest about that at first. I thought the, the team-based thing sounded pretty good, but... Yeah, so we got a couple um, 
a couple comments that I thought were interesting. The first was from Karen Boyd. This was on Twitter. And what Karen said, Karen's a social scientist, and she said, this is how social science PhDs usually work, at least in all three of the labs I've seen. It's a great way to learn and work. So apparently Karen has experienced this way of doing science, really liked it, and unbeknownst to us, this must be how certain fields yeah, actually work. A vote, but a vote in favor, Generally. like... Sounds like somebody has been through it and thinks it works. Yeah. And maybe so, that's just true for social science, though. Maybe because so. the other feedback was different. Some yeah, other the other feedback, feedback had some questions. Although I would say if you're out there and you have experience in this team science, let us know what it's like because we'd, we'd love to hear more about it. So another piece of feedback we got that I found interesting was from Paul on Twitter. And so what Paul said um, was, I worry about just being a cog in the machine. Assembly line science, no broad skills learned. Yeah, I think it's a an interesting critique and a fair assessment. Um, he he goes on to talk about the lab I'm in has synth organic chemistry to zebrafish and leukemia. You generally stick to your own field, but not to just one technique. So it sounds like he wants to do lots of different techniques. Um, and and I get it. You know, you don't want to be the person who just runs PCRs. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I don't think that would be um, necessarily what we were we were getting at. I think mostly just thinking about a way that as a graduate student working on your project, you weren't so isolated with your project when things inevitably hit the wall. You've kind of got this team there that's kind of helping you. Kind of cog in the machine, um, maybe the extreme form of this where you you divide it up into such small pieces that each person really only has one task and they run it like an assembly line. I don't think that would happen in academic research. Yeah, um, we definitely wouldn't want to come there to that point. No, I don't think so. But I think what this what this points out is that there are probably quite a few people um, doing PhDs and in science who are kind of independent contributors. They don't necessarily want to work in a big team. And um, I think that's a perfectly reasonable work style. I, I like to have a project that I work on myself. And I might report on it or interact with a group of people. But I don't want to have a lot of people like in it with me. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sure there are lots of people like that. Your job, Dan, is to add the TAC polymerase. My job yep. is to add the magnesium chloride. Kevin's job is to add the primers. Who shakes it? Shake it, Dan. <laughs> All right. Cool. Thanks for the feedback. If, if you've got feedback on an episode, certainly we would love to hear it. You can email us or tweet at us. All right. Kevin's over there. Maybe we should talk to him. Great idea. All right. So... Kevin, why don't you introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Kevin. I am, like Josh said, a second-year PhD student. I'm working in the lab of Karen Mulkey at UNC in the BCB program, which is the Bioinformatics and Computational Biology program. Fantastic. Do you study giraffes? <laughs> no, we haven't got that grant approved yet. <laughs> Could Josh convince you to study giraffes? <laughs> what's another, You should pick, like, rhinos, or what's another animal that is a popular zoo what is creature. it like? Is it pandas or koalas that are endangered and won't mate with each other? Maybe oh, they're different pandas. species. Pandas, yeah. Are they different species after all? Maybe they are. <laughs> that's There's a grant for you. Yeah. All right, panda. I think we've just genetic. unlocked the, uh, uh, the entire zoology field right right here tonight. All right, so Kevin, um, so you're blind. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that. <laughs> is that a segue? <laughs> that was not a segue. <laughs> yeah, so um, I am blind. I'm legally blind, though. I do have a little bit of vision. Um I, it's a, I have a genetic condition called uh, Libra's congenital amaurosis, so I did have it from birth. I mean, so this is fascinating to me because when Josh said, oh, I, I worked with a student and he's blind, and I said, there's no way because I, I was picturing in my, in, in my world what grad school was like for me, and I'm pipetting and I'm, I'm working with mice, and I was thinking, that would be so difficult to do these different types of things, but you have found a way to, to be in science, to do science, and I think it's 
pretty creative. So I would love to hear about how you got into it. Well, yeah, I was lucky in that I came into the field when you can do all these really cool biology-based projects all on the computer. You know, we have all these huge sequencing data sets that are generated, and you can just mine those data sets and have so many great questions. And then you can make predictions and have people in your lab go and do, you know, whatever assay you need to validate your findings or your predictions. But with that being said, before this was a thing and in other fields where it's not a thing, like chemistry, for example, I do have, you know, blind colleagues who do wet lab work and they do it all through using assistants who are more or less lab techs and they direct them what to do. They tell them how to troubleshoot and, you know, they control all of the parameters of the experiments. Sounds like undergrads. Exactly. So they have their own... <laughs> Trust undergrads that much? They have an undergrad who knows what they're doing. <laughs> yeah, that's that's pretty incredible. So so they are... are consuming all the literature, they are coming up with the experiment, they are designing all the parameters. Yeah, they're learning, you know, all of the things that you need to do the technique and, um, you know, they get the output of the technique in whatever format that they, you know, um, consume it, whether that's tactile or someone describing it to them verbally, and then they can troubleshoot from there. They have to know the techniques just as well as anyone else, you know, but they're not doing the, the pipetting themselves, which is a really minuscule part of it at the end of the day. I yeah. think most people would not want to do that part. It's, it's a minuscule part, and it is not the most fun that you have in the lab. <laughs> at least I didn't. I'm, I'm sure there are people totally like pipetting. Yeah. Now, yeah. what does it look like for your work? How do, you, how do you interact with the code and then the results of the code? So um, I guess the, a good place to start is how I use computers in general. So they have these um, software programs out. There's multiple versions now called screen readers that synthesize text on the computer into audio output. And so whatever um, you know, you're scrolling through, it's reading line by line, or you can navigate through whatever layer of, of the text, like words, characters, paragraphs, all that stuff. And whatever you type is echoed back to you so that you know what you're doing. So everything on the computer has an audio interface to it. How this applies when you're getting into programming is all programming is, is writing and reading text. Sure, yeah. You, you know, there are higher level things now where you can, you know, use like Excel to do things or quick, you know, programs like with these graphical components, but that's relatively new. Most people, you know, code all of their things just in text. You can do everything you ever need to do in programming using notepad and a command line. It's not always going to be easy to do it that way, but you can. Yeah. Uh, what, what language do you write in just for my sake? Josh can ignore us. So whatever, you know, I need to get the job done, but usually I, Python's my go-to language. It's the one I know the best. Whoop, whoop, Python. Yeah. But I do other languages. I've very recently been into using the um, scripting languages like Bash because you can interact with files so quickly in those languages and you can run other programs really quickly in these big automated pipelines that we do in genomics so much. So what does the output look like, though? You're, you're writing programs to mine bioinformatics data. You're looking through genomic data sets. Correct. And then what is the result? What comes out of that? Well, you know, tons of things can come out of that. So what do most people do when they go and look at something? They, If they're interested in, you know, where a factor is binding across the genome, they'll, you know, maybe make a heat map across the genome of those peaks or something like that and look at it in a graph like that. Well, you know, you can break those things down into tabular results, or you could break them down into say, I've calculated that, you know, 5% overlap promoter regions or 25% overlap enhancer regions. And, you know, you can have all that output in text formats. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to imagine it 
And and the way you describe it, it's totally true. You can you can turn it into a different type of format and consume it a different way. That's cool. Yeah, and I think when a lot of people are looking at data, you know, and they're visualizing distributions, I, I guess like if you look at these old papers that um, where people would report like a mean and a standard deviation of something, mm-hmm. and you're like, well, you don't know what your data actually looks like, but people seem to be okay with that, and. You can kind of <laughs> do, true. do that with a lot of things now. People will just like fill up a graph and see what it looks like generally. But there are much more descriptive ways that you can do. You can, you know, fit the data to a normal distribution and look at how well it fits, you know, with numbers. You can do things like um, check the median of the distribution and compare all of the quantiles, like the upper quartile and the lower quartile. And are you seeing a big spread there? That can, Those are things that I use to help get a, a handle on my data. Like, is this data pretty uniform? Is it normally distributed? Is there like a binomial type response where there's um, all factors are like really high or really low? You know, those are all things that you can look at more in very quantitative terms. So there's probably a much more precise way to do analysis. I was going to say where the rest of us are like, yeah, that looks kind of yeah, bell shapey. I don't know if I yeah, believe that's that. All right. that looks- See, that's what I like to think. I, I think it, it's a very unique way of doing things and it kind of helps you get an even more quantitative view of things. So I'd like to take a step back a little bit, way back. Back in the time. <laughs> Why are you doing your very white voice? <laughs> so, so, Kevin, when did you first become interested in science? It's, it was probably sometime in third or fourth grade. I don't know. Whenever they started that is teaching, way back. Whenever they started teaching science in school. I don't think we were learning it in first grade yet. But I was, you know, always interested in a lot of different types of science, you know, geology, physics, environmental science, all of those things. And when I got into high school, I think was when I fu- like first got into genetics. I took my first, you know, um, biology course in 10th grade. And that was probably the science that I liked the most, that in chemistry and just um, thinking about how, you know, I could connect to different types of science at the axis of genetics was I, when I probably got excited and think maybe I'll actually go and do this as a, as a career. But with that being said, I was thinking about other types of science at the, at the time too. I started undergrad as a chemistry major. At the time, I was also interested in physics and math and things like that. That's a good lead-in. So once you're in college, you know, you're interested in science. What led you to get involved in a research lab? Well, by the time I was in college, I knew that I wanted to get a PhD. Then I knew that a lot more when I was a freshman than I did when I was a senior. (laughs) (laughs) Wait a minute. (laughs) uh, That seems backwards. I understand. (laughs) Yeah, Josh knows. I, I was never someone that had my career planned out all that well. Like, I didn't have in my mind that when I was, you know, going to graduate, I was going to do this particular program and I was going to go to this particular faculty job and, or that I was going to go to med school or I wanted to be an industry scientist. never thought about those things. I just knew that I wanted to be doing research somewhere and doing something cool in science. So that's why I started to look for, for research labs that I didn't know specifically what I wanted to do, but I knew that I wanted to at least give research a shot. All right, Kevin. So you said you kind of had this idea for a long time you wanted to go to graduate school, but when it came down to it, why did you choose grad schools? You're at the end of undergrad. Why, why get a PhD? So I didn't go directly into grad school after undergrad. I actually um, went and did a post-bac internship program with the Josh Rand called the prep program at UNC. Small world. <laughs> and it was great, right? It was. So but senior Josh, year. Josh, you uh, can stop poking <laughs> him in the side with that knife. <laughs> Yeah, so I'll go back to midway through senior year when I was thinking about these things. I had just taken a human genetics course, and I loved it. And I was like, yeah, I want to keep doing something with this. But 
it took me longer to get into research than I expected. So I'd, I was only on my third semester of research and I didn't feel like I was prepared there. And I was also, I had only ever been in one lab and I didn't have a lot of exposure to all the different areas that I could do research in. So with all that together and wanting more things like professional development, I was looking around for things and I had, I talked to a colleague who said, I've heard about this great program at UNC, which was kind of interesting because I was at UNC as an undergrad and I knew nothing about it. So I got, I got in contact with Josh, you know, and then I applied to prep and got in and it really helped me, um, learn a lot about what it's like to do research full time. So what the prep program is, is a year of completely full time research, taking a graduate level class and then having, um, periodic professional development workshops and things of that nature. All right. So you're a second year PhD student. Now you've spent quite a bit of time in the lab between your post back and two years in graduate school. So have you found anything to be particularly challenging about being blind and working in the lab? So I think the hardest thing is preparing data in a way that, you know, sighted people for, like find appealing. I don't mean that I don't like presenting science. I really love getting up and giving science talks. But when it comes down to which graph is best to show this data is, you know, it's um, kind of like a hard thing for me to decide because I'm not the target audience, so I can't make those decisions. <laughs> so I tried for a while to be like, I guess I could try and make it this way and then this way, and then I'll ask people. And then I just realized this is not a good use of my time. I should just ask people what they think and then see if they could you know, help make it. So I don't have to worry about, did I make that formatting right on that slide? Are the contrasts good? Should I use a bar graph instead of a Venn diagram? Those things don't matter to me at all, so I can't make those calls. That's really fascinating. Um, yeah, almost like you, yeah, the way you interpret your data is fundamentally different than the way we have kind of become used to relying on these graphs. Yeah, you have to have a different mental concept of that data. I mean, the data is the same, but now you, you have, in your mind, you hold it a different way so that you can process it. Yeah, I mean, or I Or I could say we hold it a different way. And, and it's fascinating to think about that, that you have to prepare um, data in a way that speaks to your audience. And I wonder if your audience is doing the same thing for you. I mean, most people don't because when you are in the audience is what I meant to say. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I don't know that that's always uh, the best use of people's time is to try and find the best way to present to everyone. You know, we're working on ways to try and make science more accessible. And, you know, these are ideas that we're trying to do. Like journals are now trying to make sure that people release the tabular um, results that they have behind the graphs that are made so that not only can everyone have access to them more easily, you can also check their work and, you know, actually plug the data in yourself and can you reproduce their graphs with their data because not everybody releases all of the supplementary tables that they use to make them yeah but photoshop makes a beautiful graph <laughs> and you just move the bars wherever you want to yeah exactly yeah, i actually did see recently i think it was don't hold me to this but i think it was jbc journal of biological chemistry and i think they actually say in their advice to authors or their recommendations to authors no bar graphs which that was interesting which is not all the way to what we were talking about but why no bar graphs what do you need a bar graph for that a table doesn't give you? Oh, but I like bar graphs. <laughs> well, I think, well, I think in that, what they actually are getting at is there's a movement to displaying your actual data points to doing scatter plots instead yeah. of bar graphs. Um, so why show a bar graph that just represents the mean oh, and the see. standard error? Oh, I see. You're talking show, about the, the mean oh, like and a the error bars. Yeah, I see. Yeah. Exactly. So would you say, so on the flip side, Kevin, I think you got to, you talked a little bit about this or alluded to it. Would you say there are any advantages to 
having limited sight in being in science? I think it's always good to have diversity of of how people think about things. So when you're coming into approaching a problem, everyone's going to approach it differently. But when you have people comp- approaching it from completely different sides, like um, it just increases the you know amount of possibility that you have there for you know finding new discoveries or finding better ways or quicker ways to do things. So I'm not going to say that you know the ways that I do it are, are better for everyone, but there may be certain things that I do in a quicker way than other people would do. For example, I can read things so much faster than people because I can um, use my screen reading program at like several hundred words a minute. And so then when I'm debugging code or when I'm reading papers, I can just do those things really, really fast. Anyone could learn to do that. Yeah, I was going to I was gonna ask you uh, what speed you listen to your podcasts and things because I, I take pride in the fact that if I listen to an audio book or a podcast, I get up to like 1.5x. Sometimes if a person <laughs> talks really slowly, I'll get up to 2x, but usually not sustainably. But I think, you know, you can train your brain to do it. So I keep leisure stuff at normal human speed. <laughs> <laughs> but it's harder to listen to science stuff at, at high speed, isn't it? Actually, don't think so because I'm in work mode and I don't really... Uh, it doesn't bother me if it's, you know, a little annoying because I just want to get the data faster. That's impressive. I listen to my leisure stuff as fast as possible so I can get this leisure <laughs> over with. <laughs> you haven't That's truly discovered leisure. <laughs> this leisure is so intense. I love it. <laughs> oh, so, uh, I did want to go back yeah, um, sure. about the people presenting their data and, you know, the ways that are accessible. I've actually found that a good written paper or a good science talk is Everything's explained in terms of the talk in words. You know, anyone thinks a talk is bad if people just put up a slide and then say a few things and don't explain what's on the slide. So those yeah. are, that's a bad science talk. So, and the same as a paper, if it doesn't describe what they did in a figure in the text of the paper, then it's, you know, probably a cell paper. But <laughs> <laughs> We call that a nature paper. <laughs> Shot across your bow cell. <laughs> no, but most, um, I mean, this... Is probably something that we're going to get into later, but I found that the access to the material and papers and, and things like that is not as much as people would think it would be when they hear about someone blind doing science. Most people don't read all the text in the paper because, you know, you can look at the figures and get the same thing. But when I read all the papers, just using the text and the figure captions, I can get pretty much everything I need to. And I know all the little details that other people didn't know in class. And they're like, oh, did they do that thing? I'm like, oh, yeah, they did that. It was like right here in this random paragraph. Oh, that's yep. a good point. Something yep. that you would miss if you just skimmed looking at, if you just looked at the figures and skimmed the text. Right. Right. And if you're not consuming it as quickly as Kevin can, you <laughs> wouldn't take the time. You'd, you'd read the little bit of the abstract and then the conclusion and call it a day. Because it would take me two hours. <laughs> yeah, to, exactly. Yeah, that's really Or longer, depending or on the paper. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, Kevin, I have a question. So, through your scientific career so far, you know, have you ever encountered any negativity or doubt or bias from others because because you're blind? Definitely. I'm I have to put it in perspective though. I've I've heard a lot of horror stories from a lot of people, um, a lot of blind colleagues of mine that have had terrible situations at the universities where professors just won't give them accommodations for courses or you know, they just had really hard times with things like that. I have had trouble, but I have to say that being at UNC has been a very welcoming environment in the vast majority of my professors and PIs that I've worked with have been very good and have been very um, open-minded and willing to work with me with these things. With that being said, there have been a few select cases where, you know, I've got some like pretty tough blows to the face from these people. Or I was actually in an interview for grad school and someone said that they didn't 
think that there was a way that I could do this just because I was blind. And the rest of that interview, I was just like stunned and I couldn't really, you know, <laughs> respond to anything else they had to say because they were already making this judgment without, you know. So it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't even like, wow, that's going to be really hard. How are you going to do that? It's like, you can't do this and I won't support you. Exactly. So the way that you said it is is perfectly fine. If you're going to say, I don't know how you do that, you know, you could describe it to me or, you know, what, it, what are other ways of doing this, right? Yeah, find it, out exactly how you would approach it. Exactly. Having never been in that situation yourself. I mean, you have to think that people who are blind have usually been blind their whole lives and know how to deal with it. They have, they're experienced at being blind and doing things different ways. It's not like if you were had to do it tomorrow, just becoming newly blind, that would be much different. And I think that's how people think about these things a lot of the time. They're like, if I had to do this and I was blind, not knowing the you know, 10 years that this person has been training doing these things, then it would be very hard for me. But that's not the right way to look at it. And, you know, this was in the, like, showing my, half of my prep year of work, my undergraduate research is all there on my resume. And this, like, so I was already doing science, right? Yeah, you already had this proof that, hey, of course I can do this. I wouldn't be here in this interview right now. (laughs) Cough, cough. Here's my CV. Jerk. Yeah. So things like that do happen. Could you respond to that person and say, look, I think I know what I'm talking about since I'm the one living this life. I did my best at the interview, and I'd, if the person didn't believe me, then I'm not going to keep trying. <laughs> it's obviously not worth it, but wow. No. This is actually a great segue. Uh, so that obviously was a really, like a really shocking and probably pretty annoying thing to have said to you. But are there any other things that people commonly say to you? Like maybe not even in a professional setting, but just generally that really annoy you or or get under your skin? Yeah, so I And think, have I said any of those things yet? I'm sure I have. <laughs> so I still get this to this day where people um, that I work with will say like, wow, like, you know, you must be able to, I, like, I'm so impressed that you can like read papers or that you can do this very well, or you did very well in this homework assignment, you know, like, like they're surprised. And like, I'm a second year PhD student. We are all competent. We're all very smart scientists. That's why we're here. Like, so the level of surprise yeah. that like, oh, he's actually really good at this. Well, yeah, because I guess what is sort of the subtext in that, what's implied in that statement is, oh, I wouldn't have thought you could do that. I'm surprised or that you, you shouldn't did well. be able to do that, right? Yeah. Like, it's kind of like, if you would say that to other, you know, minorities that are underrepresented in science, it would be taken a lot worse. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. Yeah. If <laughs> so, I I just have this feeling that one day I'm going to be a PI somewhere, and someone's going to be like, "Oh wow, I'm really impressed that you were able to do that." And I'm like, seriously, this is just going to follow me the rest of my career. <laughs> I can imagine some of it is like, "Oh, I don't know how I would approach that if if this were me. I don't know what I would do." And I think it goes back to what you said before, which is you've lived with this your whole life. You have the strategies, you have the skills to do what you need to do to get this far. Obviously, you can keep pushing it further and further and further. And I, and I think people are imagining if I were dropped into this situation, I'd just be totally lost. Yeah, exactly. Actually, the things you're talking about, I think it was on, do you ever listen to This American Life podcast? No. Yeah, so one of the things they were talking about is they were, the whole episode was interviewing this guy who was blind. He rides his bike to work every day. And he, he was talking about a lot of the same things you were, how you know he's always just done things like that. He goes hiking by himself. He goes backpacking through the mountains by himself. And people, same thing. They're like, how do you do that? I'm surprised. I can't believe you do that. And he was talking about how a lot of times 
you know, when he was growing up, people wouldn't allow blind people to do things because they put their own notions of what someone they thought someone could or couldn't do. So it's almost like, and sometimes parents would be guilty of this or teachers or whatnot to not allow, and he was talking about blind kids and some of his friends, they wouldn't allow them to even try doing something because in their mind, you shouldn't be able to do this. When yeah, you, if you just hurt, yeah. allow us to do, <laughs> do what everybody else does, we can do it. Exactly. I'm glad that you brought it up that way because that further, that puts rationale behind the the frustration that I get when I hear things like, you know, I'm so surprised that you can do that or, you know, it's so impressive where, you know, because you would think that, oh, well, people just aren't used to that and you should expect that they're going to be a little surprised. But the frustration comes from the fact that these actually do correlate in a lot of or translate in a lot of scenarios to people being um, suppressed from opportunities because people don't think that they can do it. So this happens all the times in job interviews with people that I've heard, you know, from colleagues where employers won't hire you because they don't think that you can do this without any prior knowledge, you know, of what your capabilities are. And the same thing happens with children when their parents won't let them do extracurricular activities or take certain classes or go to college by themselves. All these things do happen. They're very big problems in the blind community that we're trying to work to overcome. So, you know, sometimes we might get a little, um, <laughs> we might over respond a little too harshly to things when people say that, but it comes from, you know, this, this real problem that we're having. Mm-hmm. And so I'm glad that you brought that up that, so I can make that connection there a little cleaner. Yeah, no, that's, that's yeah. really fascinating. That's helpful. And I think talking about it now, everybody who's listening um, will have hopefully a different concept of, of what it means and what it's like to be blind and how um, you, you know, how you do solve the problem and it's a different way, but it's a perfectly effective way and it's not surprising and it's not. Yeah. And there's like, there's not necessarily a blind way of doing things because so many different blind people have different approaches to things or, or, you know, like, um, for example, I don't usually go hiking by myself, but I like to go hiking, but I do like to go hiking with other people. So, you know, there's always, you know, variability in how, what people are comfortable with doing or the various ways they do things or people always ask me these questions. Like I got this the other day, like a few months ago, someone said, what is the one thing you want people to know about being blind? And like, I kind of fumbled on the spot and I was like, we're all different. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, when you think about it like that, you have to just think that, you know, like any group, we're just a cross-section of the society, right? We're a a smaller cross-section with the same diversity as as the rest of society who is going to have their own preferences and own skill sets and going to be able to come up with different innovative ways to do things. Josh, you should delete question 15. (laughs) What is the one thing you want people (laughs) Cross not, that not on there. <laughs> yeah, that's really fascinating because I know I've spoken with students who are uh, from racial and ethnic minority groups, and one of the frustrations they always talk about is being put in these situations where they're being asked to speak for that entire group, and how frustrating that is because no, we don't all have the same opinions, we don't all have the same <laughs> ways of doing things or ways of thinking about things. We're human beings. We're all different. I think that's a commonality of in whatever way of being a um, a minority group. I guess what advice would you give to other people maybe who are high school students or undergraduates or individuals who are blind or really have any other physical disability who are thinking about pursuing science or graduate school? Based on what you've learned, do you have any advice for them? So I guess the first inspirational uh, piece I would say is that all of the things that you have to do 
with whatever physical disability you have, if I'm talking specifically to people with physical disabilities, all the innovation that you have to come up with in your life is going to really prepare you for doing science or whatever research-based career that you want to do. I can't speak to other professions, but approaching things from different angles and thinking about how can I you know, solve this problem in a way that no one has solved it before are excellent science tools. And being able to work the long hours when you're in high school to like learn how to, you know, interpret this piece of information in a class a different way or how to learn how to code, you know, using all audio. All these things are really great for preparing you to do a science career, for working really long hours and feeling like you're just running up against walls and having to find whole new ways of doing things. That So if you are already having success with doing that, then I think that you could be a great scientist. You just described grad school in a nutshell <laughs> running up against a wall <laughs> finding a new way of doing things yeah, and I mean, it is that persistence yeah i mean it really is it sounds like it's building a muscle early on of perseverance and creative problem solving exactly so don't go into accounting they don't want creative <laughs> like oh i found a new way to do accounting you're fired yeah so people who have had to do this are in high school or undergrad are going to be ahead of the the curve a little bit in grad school when everyone's complaining that they have to do more than a nine to five thing or that they have to you know do something that no one's taught them how to do before and i guess going to a more general piece of advice that i think everyone should have but it's something that we're still trying to build in the blind community is having a really good network system as early as you can get it. So that's kind of one of the reasons I joined prep was that I could get a good network system and get connected to the scientific community and get my name known by some, um, you know, prominent PIs at UNC and, you know, learn what they were doing. They could be impressed by what I was doing and all these things. So you really need to find people who are in the careers that you want to be in and, people who are successful with whatever disability that you have in those fields and connect with them and, you know, get ideas from everybody that you can and just try to um, learn from them and just Mm -hmm. build your network there. Yeah. So you've been in science world for a little while now. What, in what ways do you think science could improve to be more inclusive? So this is kind of similar to what I was just saying about having networks. Um, we really need to have more programs that are intended to help people get um, into science. And like, we need to have outreach com- programs that are specific to people with certain disabilities, because although every people, everybody who's blind is different, there are, you know, common ways of doing things that you can, that you need to know or hacks that people have come up with to learn things in your specific field. And so people are doing that here North Carolina is actually very, um, good with this right now because my friend over at NC State has a STEM program for high schoolers who are blind. Leaf Starling is running that program. And also there are programs like the National Federation of the Blind has a program in, um, that does STEM um, preparation for blind high school students. But those are the only two that I know of that are STEM outreach programs for blind individuals. Yeah, I got to attend the final presentations for the NC State program a couple years ago. That was really cool. Yeah. So we need stuff like that in undergrad and in the post-bac era because PrEP is intended for people of all um, underrepresented categories, but it's primarily tuned right now towards ethnic minorities. And that's great, but we need something that is also tuned to people with disabilities. Yeah, so is, is, is your point just that blind individuals in high school and different places may not know that science is out there and is a viable career option and, and we need to go and, and make sure that they know that there are lots of opportunities? Yeah, I mean, it, it needs to be a cultural expectation that this can can happen, and that needs to start with you know people who have been successful going back and 
bringing up the community, letting parents know that it's something that you shouldn't be terrified of or that's something that you should expect of your kids to be successful. So we need that to, it's as natural as can be that your, your child might grow up to be a scientist. Yeah, it needs to not be okay for someone not to be successful. That's kind of like the default. And if they're successful, that's great, you know, mm-hmm. and they're kind of seen as like the savants or the gurus or all these things. But there's, it needs to be the default that you're successful in whatever that you want to do. It's kind of like the same issues that we've had with ethnic minorities in the past where, you know, there have been, so there've been very different reasons why cultural minorities or ethnic minorities have been um, oppressed from things than disability. I recognize that, but getting people into science requires coming overcoming these barriers and programs that are specifically designed to do this, to get skills that aren't being taught to these people wherever they come from and teaching them the skills that you need to be successful because that's shown very good success in um, people like in getting ethnic minority participation up in science. So I really do think that that would be very successful for people with disabilities as well, because although the causes are different, I think that the results are kind of very similar and, you know, getting people to the same place. Yeah. I think there's a lot of overlaps So more, more intentional um, outreach and support. So Kevin, what do you do for fun? I mean, besides science, I mean, science is really the most fun. Yeah, this is you my hobby. He never my gets job. tired of listening to papers and, <laughs> and listening to the Hello PhD yeah, podcast, of course. I listen to Hello PhD while I'm sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> most people do. <laughs> we have that effect on people. <laughs> so yeah, what do you like to do uh, in your in your free time? All right. So um, one of my biggest hobbies was I used to play music a lot. I don't have a lot of time for it now, or the space in my apartment to you know have instruments, but. I am an avid musician. I also like to go hiking. I like to go running and lift weights. So, you know, I'm, I do like athletics and music. And um, in addition to my sole passion of science right now, that takes up 90% of my time. <laughs> we played some music together once or twice. We did around a campfire. Around a campfire. It was epic. Yeah. I missed that one. Yeah. Next time. Next time. As soon as we get off this microphone, we're going to have a little <laughs> a little sing-along. Oh, yeah. All your walls are covered in stringed instruments. But Kevin, that was really fascinating and really appreciate your time coming out and, and talking to us and to our audience. And that was great. Yeah, Thank thanks, you. Thanks for having me on. I, you know, take every opportunity that I can to, you know, help spread the word. <laughs> All right, Dan, you ready for the etymology puzzle? Yes, Josh, I'm ready for the etymology puzzle. The clue last week was a rap, basically. The clue was, if there was one of these, yo, I'll solve it. Just throw it forward while my DJ revolves it. You know what it is, Josh? <laughs> no do you idea. not know? Do you, do you recognize the the rhyme? Uh, is that Ice Ice Baby? It is. Do you? Kn- I mean, can, you nailed it, really. Yeah, but can you <laughs> can you complete the the statement? If there was a, the answer is problem. I was gonna say problem. <laughs> the answer is problem. The word problem comes from Greek problema. Problema. I don't know. I need to learn Greek. Anyways, um, pro is forward, literally forward, um, and balin is to throw. So basically, you're throwing something forward. This is the word problem. Like I have this problem I'm throwing forward. I don't get it. It's like a, a geometry problem, or I, probably we're thinking of the Greek philosophers. You're like, here's here's a concept to think over. And so they would put it forward to the group to discuss. And that was the word problem. Yeah, I think there's probably something deep and profound here, but it's too late and I've had too many beers. Think a lot about it, yeah. But think about the fact that a problem, which we usually see as a roadblock or a negative, the actual etymology of that is moving forward. Well, I think it's like you're putting it forward for thinking about or to discuss with a group of people. So um, that root word, balin, is the same root that is in ballistics. 
So now, now you know. See, my clue would have been Mo Money, Mo These. <laughs> but then how do you work in Throw Forward? Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> throw Forward some Mo Money. <laughs> okay, you can write the next week's clue. All which right. is... What, what do you got for okay. us this week? So this one drawn from today's headlines, just because you made me. Uh, just when you thought your campaign was floating along, this type of inflammation could draw unwanted attention. Read it one more time. Just when you thought your campaign was floating along, this type of inflammation could draw unwanted attention. Remember, we're looking for a scientific word described by the clue, and once you get it, you'll find the literal meaning of that science word as a phrase in the clue itself. If you think you know the answer, email it to puzzle at hellophd.com. We will randomly select a winner from all the correct responses and send the lucky puzzler an Amazon gift card. Fantastic. Well, this has been a great show. If you've got anything you would like to say, some feedback on this show or ideas for a future show, you can send us an email, podcast at hellophd.com. You can send us a tweet at hellophd or contact us on the Facebook page. All right. Well, thanks, Kevin, for coming out. This is really fun. Yeah, Kevin. Thank you. I hope uh, you fellas enjoyed the Garden Party Brew from Kansas. Yep. Yeah. Thanks again for sending it in. Please send us beers. We enjoy them. We love free beer. All right. See you next time. We'll see you next time. What we gonna do right here is go back. Way back. Back into time. Y'all, baby, y'all, baby.